Linux has created much more value for Google than it has for Linus Torvalds. Ruby on Rails has created more value for Airbnb than it has for David Heinemeier Hansen. Successful open source projects create more value than their creators capture. And that's one reason why collections of people on the internet are often inspired to work together on open source. When an engineer creates an open source project and that open source project finds a large audience, the engineer can often build a successful business. There are very good examples of this, like SpringSource, Cloudera, and Elastic. These are massively successful enterprises that were founded by the creators of open source software. But in other cases, the value of the open source project gets largely captured by cloud providers that create a closed source version of the open source project and offer it as a service. Sean Connolly has worked in senior strategic roles at software companies such as SpringSource, VMware, and Hortonworks. Throughout his decades of experience, much of his time has been spent figuring out how to monetize open source projects intelligently. Sean joins the show to talk about his past experiences building enterprises, as well as modern issues, such as how to compete with major cloud providers. We also discuss the Commons Clause License, a new software license that open source projects can use to try to protect their value from being entirely captured by a cloud provider. Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors. If you're interested in reaching over 50,000 developers, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor to find out more, and you can send us a message there. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are an engineer working at a company that is marketing to developers or hiring developers, if you tell your marketing department or your recruiting department about us, you can help us out that way. You can just send them a link to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor, and we'll be happy to talk to them. In any case, your listenership is always enough to support us, and we appreciate it. So let's get on with the show. Sean Connolly, you are an executive product strategist. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Well, we have a lot to talk about. You've been working on software product strategy since the 80s, and there's so much historical context that I want to unpack, as well as talk about what is new and what is novel and perhaps unprecedented. So I'm hoping we can blend some history and some predictions of the future. How has your approach to software product development evolved over the last 30 years? Well, I mean, just the technology space in general has evolved. I mean, when I first started writing software, it was on uh, Patriot missile radar systems, right? So very constrained memory environments. And then I was at Primavera Systems for about 12 years, uh, project management software for very large scale companies. And you know, that evolved from basically PCs and DOS and went up through Windows, et cetera, and the web era. But I guess since 2000, it's really been mostly internet-based you know, technologies as e-business kind of you know, hit the inflection point. A lot of great innovation started happening back in, those, uh, you know, in that sort of 2000 timeframe. You saw the rise of Linux, Red Hat Linux, things like that. And I think open source began to really take hold and drive a lot of the shared infrastructure services, internet services, you know, uh, general application platforms, things like that. 
which is, I think, where you saw a lot of the uh, sort of infrastructure that powered the new generation of business, all the way through sort of mobile, Internet of Things, et cetera, that we see today. So it's been waves of innovation, waves of technology change. And frankly, these days, I think the change has been accelerating. There's these different inflection points that you alluded to there. You've got the movement to just people having mobile phones. That's one thing. You've got cloud. You've got open source, the the change in open source. And you have borne witness to all of these things. And we'll go through some of the companies that you you saw these changes firsthand at. Because each of these inflection points, I think, break rules and create new rules around software product strategy. Tell me something counterintuitive about software product strategy that you believe today that maybe I wouldn't hear from somebody else. So, you know, I think how I, my product strategy role evolved, particularly when I joined um, JBoss in uh, 2004. It was, you know, arguably just as open source software was starting to really pick up steam, so to speak. The conversations changed from, you know, to how can you use the technology and become more familiar with it away from what's an open source license, <laughs> right? So it transitioned to really businesses getting a lot out of it as opposed to, you know, looking at sort of the legal underpinnings. And I think the model, if you will, of openness, all the code is out there uh, in the open as a product strategist made my job a lot easier because it becomes less about BS <laughs> and more about here's the technology. You could take a look at it yourself. There's not a lot of overselling uh, that, that happens in that space. And that's in many respects freeing, if you will, um, from a product strategy perspective. Not only you know, in your relationship with sort of the end users and customers of uh, whatever you may sell as a business, but also partners and others who want to integrate with the technology. They can see it, they can touch it, they can feel it, and they can get a feel for where what the technology does well today, maybe where it's heading next, those types of things. So I think that transparency is something that, you know, I've lived and breathed for practically 15 years. And you know, I don't think there's a, a ton of people who've had that as transparent of a focus, if you will, from a product strategy perspective. And that goes from application, you know, platforms like JBoss to um, frameworks like Spring or um, even to full data platforms uh, that Hortmark's had. Um, so it doesn't really, it's not sort of specific technology focused. It's more your approach and your collaborative approach, if you will, with the customers and partners who may have an interest in the technology, that open approach um, really changes the nature of the relationship. And that openness, that's in contrast to perhaps a more adversarial relationship between the software vendor and the customer, which I think that adversarial relationship was maybe the norm in early 90s, mid 90s. And that's why a lot of enterprises today have an allergy to lock in they're very suspicious of software companies. And uh, it's funny because that suspicion now can sometimes undermine an enterprise that's trying to figure out what software vendor to go with. Or, you know, if they, you know, say we really need multi-cloud, 
and because we don't want to be locked in. It's like, well, maybe that's a priority of yours, but maybe you should be trying to update your enterprise a lot faster so that you don't get taken over by competition and multi-cloud might slow you down. But it arises from this this competition, this uh, this adversarial hit background with software vendors. Would you say that's accurate? You know, I would say it depends on the vendor. There's different personalities, if you will, that are set from the top. But, you know, in general, yes, I think... If you look at what drives you know companies, particularly the larger companies that are selling licensed software, in many respects, they're just trying to get the customer to buy the license and whether or not they actually use the software <laughs> is secondary, right? And so that buy before you're able to really truly uh, use it at scale, if you invert it where you know in, in open source uh, or even open source models that have commercial sort of wrappers around them, there's a clear way to sort of engage with and, you know, try out the technology and make sure it scratches the particular itch. I think so, you know, that changes the nature of the relationship to be more about how can I add value to, you know, the technology or the product that you're using versus you need to buy my license and that might be shelfware, right? You know, I think that, you know, I've worked with a lot of engineers. I've been an engineer sort of in my in my past and the thing I hate the most is to create features and functions that don't get used, <laughs> right? So shelfware is of no interest <laughs> from my perspective. I want to create and I work, I want to work with engineers that create great you know, technologies and great solutions that customers actually care about and use. And so I think you get a good number of companies who have that type of relationship with their customer, whether they're commercial or open source. Um, I think that works, right? So I, th- I think it's a bit of a, what's the culture, what's the approach? You know, what are you going to stand for from a uh, vendor perspective? And if you if you have it right, where, you know, it's more of a collaborative and open relationship with the customers, I think you have the chance to go further. So You said something interesting about open source, a company with an open source product. If you think about yourself as the product strategist and you're trying to sell a company's product and that company is based in open source, you, you, you were suggesting that that makes your job easier. Some people might say that's counterintuitive because, you know, we have examples of open source software that has been extremely successful where the company that's built around that open source software is not able to monetize it effectively. So there are some people who, who would say that an open source piece of software is much harder to monetize. What is it about that open source openness that makes you more comfortable formulating a product strategy? Right. So, you know, I think we have to tease apart a couple of elements. In an over, if you're a vendor focused on bringing products and solutions to market that are largely based off of open source uh, software, you know, there's a couple ways you can go about it, right? And so how you actually go about monetizing uh, the software is different than the actual sort of technological approach itself. And so the collaborative open approach to the technology makes sort of driving roadmaps and engaging people out on GitHub and you know issue tracking systems that are publicly available, et cetera, to drive the tech forward, um, I think alleviates a good bit of problems and opens the aperture to to more inputs, which frankly makes the technology uh, better more quickly. 
Um, with that, to your point, is you certainly can choose, you know, there's a variety of models where it could be pure, you know, support. It could be commercial, you know, open core where you basically have commercial extensions to open source. And there's a range of open source, you know, businesses that are based on open source is a range of models um, sort of to choose from. And that's, I would say, is aimed more at how do you how do you envision yourself monetizing? For instance, these days, you know, if I'm advising anybody, you want to make sure you have, you know, you've thought through if it's appropriate for your open source technology, particularly in the platform space it is. Um, what is your cloud um, strategy? How can you offer the technology as a service to end uh, customers? Because in many respects, large IT shops are headed to the cloud and or multi-cloud. So that has to be at least one facet of monetization. And at Hortonworks, we, you know, we had uh, cloud service offerings on Azure and Amazon, as well as the downloadable software. So there were various ways you can interact with the technology in various ways the business could monetize that technology, right? So I would say don't confuse monetization with sort of driving the roadmap forward and, you know, making sure the technology continues to sort of be vibrant and, you know, innovative when to go forward. I think the open source approach, particularly if it's a popular technology, helps facilitate, you know, quick roadmaps and a lot of interaction, which really helps the uh, technology grow in the right way. Um, so... I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I think about it. It does. And let's go deeper on an adjacent topic. You and I were talking over email about the commons clause. And I know this is something that people want to hear about. And since we're already talking about open source and its relationship to building businesses, I think we should just jump into this topic. Can you just retell the story of what's going on with this commons clause. Give us some background and get us up to speed on the involvement of Redis Labs and this company Fossa. Describe what the commons clause is and why it sparked a lot of debate among developers online. Sure. Well, I think when you get businesses focused on you know monetizing particular open source technologies, they're always sort of if they're thinking about it right, they're always looking for a way to balance what's best for the developer, for the uh, end user slash customer, and the uh, vendor, right? And so it's a balancing act. And there's a range of open source models that are out there and a range of open source licenses that you can choose. In the case of Redis Labs, uh, Redis is a very popular you know, caching technology and sort of memory-oriented database technology. And Redis Labs, the company, has built extensions. They not only drive the innovation on Redis, but they've built extensions around it that from a you know, commercial company perspective, they want to you know, be able to monetize more directly. And so they wanted to handle licensing of the extensions differently than the uh, sort of the Redis core. And there's a couple ways you can do it. You could choose alternative open source licenses like AGPL. They give you more protections. In particular, um, they stated the concern with the larger cloud vendors like Amazon, et cetera, um, sort of getting more of a free ride on the technology and being able to monetize it more directly than than they would otherwise. And so enter the commons clause, which is basically sort of an addendum, if you will, 
that can be applied to a variety of open source licenses, liberal licenses like the Apache software license, which I'm pretty familiar with since Hortonworks is uh, all Apache uh, projects. So the Apache license is very popular. Um, It's a very permissive license. And the Commons Clause basically, simply put, adds a, you, you know, if you're going to be taking this additional code, you cannot sell that code. And that applies, they applied that commons clause to the technologies that were more extension technologies, not to the sort of the Redis core stuff. But optically, when you look at how it's applied, you know, since it's just sort of an overriding piece of sort of legalese that says, the code sort of will retain sort of Apache license, but we will further restrict it with this cannot sell uh, terminology. It's almost like you're trying to make the open source license be commercial enough so you can address your business needs versus just detailing out a commercial license, (laughs) right? So I think that's where it sort of uh, ran amok. I think some, particularly in the open source uh, world, there's there are very strong opinions uh, that are out there, and I think it sort of the beehive was uh, swatted, so to speak, and it you know there was a lot of buzzing around um, the use of Commons clause and, and Redis Labs sort of explanation as to why. You know, I'm not going to comment sort of directly on you know is it or isn't it sort of a good approach. Um, I prefer m- uh, more specific approaches where you have code that's open source licensed, Apache, et cetera. And if I want something that has more commercial restrictions, then I sh- would create a uh, license specific for that code so people know what they're consuming versus it, it almost looks like it's Apache, but it has this ad- added clause to it. Feels a little too hiding behind my index finger <laughs> approach to licensing, which can get confusing. So uh, being more uh, explicit is usually tends to be my recommendation, if you will. An example of a company that was more uh, specific, and they may have had their own naysayers sort of out there uh, as they rolled out their, their licensing approach. But Elastic, you know, with Elasticsearch, Kibana, and others, very, very popular, you know, actually going uh, public, et cetera. So a very successful open source company. They created the Elastic license in particular to protect their XPAC technologies, which are security, manageability, monitoring, and a variety of things around uh, the Elastic uh, technology. But the Elastic license protects sort of the binaries, but also enables them to put the code out there. So it's the code is in the open in GitHub, but it's not open source licensed. It's using the Elastic uh, license. So in their case, they chose effectively a commercial license but they also chose to put the code in public GitHubs so people can see the code. It just has commercial license terms as opposed to open source license terms. That felt a little more specific, right? Two different approaches to a similar problem, if you will. I tend to prefer Elastic's approach than the other, but I think that's, that's kind of the net out, if you will. If I understand correctly, the Redis example is... Redis is a in-memory data data solution. Basically, it's like a, a lot of people use it for object caching yep. and, and other purposes. And the Redis project is open source. And companies like 
cloud providers will take Redis and productize it and make it a service. And they'll make minor adjustments to it, but they won't make contributions back to the open source repository. And then so Redis Labs, which is a company that that is built, I think, by the the creators of Redis. Is that right? Yeah, they're involved in the project. I think there's a big, bigger community. But yes, they have people who work on Redis as well as the extensions. Yep. Right. So their feeling is, well, there's clearly some kind of market failure here if we're making this open source project, we're contributing to this open source project, and the lion's share gets captured by AWS in their Redis as a service offering. Therefore, we need to make adjustment to the license, our Re- the Redis license that says, going forward, if we update Redis, w- when we update Redis, the the future versions of Redis cannot be used in for profit or I don't I don't know exactly the wording but basically it's wording that said that that suggests you cannot you sell. cannot use you cannot sell this you cannot sell this as a cloud product you cannot take this off the show, off you cannot do a git clone and then repurpose it and sell it as a service right and that those terms are really only apply to the uh, Redis extensions not to the Redis core so if people are creating their own other extensions that do some of the same things that uh, the Redis extensions to do, then they've created that technology and then they're free to do that. But I, you know, effectively, yes, that's what their goal is. It's a, one could argue, and I don't have facts to back this up, just sort of industry hearsay behind it, but who's monetized uh, Elastic Search the most from a business perspective? Has it been Elastic the company? Or has it been Amazon with their uh, <laughs> Elasticsearch service? Some say the Elasticsearch service has has monetized it more. You know, in the Hadoop space, right? You have uh, you know Amazon Elastic MapReduce has done really well as as well. My point is is that's that's part and parcel of the open source bargain, if you will. You have to expect that others are going to monetize at least the core technology. In the case of Elastic. They chose to create um, specific license for some of their higher value add that will control the ability of those that higher value add to be used directly by uh, folks like Amazon and others. Um, they can always form a partnership, and, and that's how that can be done, right? But there has to be a conversation that happens. Redis Labs um, is looking to force a similar thing. And this is all really how do you get a balance of the developers of the tech, the vendor behind the tech, and the end users, uh, and whether those end users are also other people who are benefiting from the tech, right? How do you get a fair exchange of value across that spectrum, if you will? It's not an easy problem to solve, right? And the licensing is sort of a tactic towards that end. And what we find is sometimes if you take a more specific approach, people can appreciate that approach more directly, whereas you might get some uproar not saying one versus the other is any better. They're both trying to tackle the same thing, which is uh, give a fair sort of ability of those using the tech a fair chance at monetization, particularly the engineers who are developing it. That has been the case since open source started, so um, not a new problem. And fair is a really tricky word here because you see some of the arguments from the open source acolytes 
here, and th- some of them are pretty moralizing. And you have to wonder, what does fair really mean here? So you have AWS, which you know was first to market in this set of tools that dramatically reduced the costs to start a company or to build whatever you want as a developer. This was tremendous windfall for developers. And yes, yes, open source was also tremendous windfall for developers, which was bigger. Well, I don't know. You can, you know, you kind of can't have one without the other, but these moralizing people who just go really strong in one direction or the other and commons clause is the death of open source or or just people who I think it's just it's very hard to have a a super strong opinion here because on the one hand it is kind of a shame that the creator you know the creators of redis or the company based around the creators of redis would not get to capture a large share of the redis market on the other hand you could argue that we're talking about the cloud market here and if redis is capturing a larger share of a subset of the cloud market is that fair to aws which was the first arguably the first real mover in the cloud market. So there's not really a moralizing argument to be made, I would say. I mean, how, how do we even evaluate whether this is good or or bad? Do we just speak personally as like a developers or like advocates for the future? <laughs> how do you formulate what is, quote, right here for you? Well, the thing is, is you know, Amazon is not doing anything wrong, <laughs> right? The terms of the license that was chosen enables them to do what they're doing, right? It's not dissimilar to, you know, IBM over many years made a ton of money off of Apache web server and a variety of Apache software foundation uh, technologies. They wrapped them up in commercial products that they sold to the market, right? But, you know, those technologies were under the hood, right? In their app servers or web servers, et cetera, Right. You know, was that bad? Was that morally uh, wrong? Uh, no, they were basically consuming the technology according to the terms of the license. So that's how come, you know, to me, this is a where do you draw the line on where you focus, you know, commercial value add if that's going to be your business model, right? And then what what's the approach to licensing? I think it ruffled feathers uh, on the quote purity, right? To me, Commons Clause is just another commercial license, we shouldn't get our feathers ruffled in that regard because it's it's not saying they're not saying that it's an OSI approved you know open source license. But with that, you know, optically, it can give the impression that it might be sort of open source ish, and I think that's that's where you sort of get this uh, gray area that all the skirmish happens in. Just don't lose sight of the fact that you know I think your broader point is increasingly. Uh, enterprise customers want to consume things as a service, <laughs> right? You know, the move to cloud-based architectures, cloud-native application development, right? DevOps, GitOps, whatever you want to call it, right? That whole wave is happening. Increasingly, more and more things are going to be deployed into infrastructure as a service, databases as a service, and and things like that. And I, as a company. Uh, if I'm building a company around open source technology, you know, I'm going to want to make sure I have a strong offering in that as a service realm. Uh, to your point, there can be other players in that space, like Amazon already has a sort of a caching tier on that. 
that then puts pressure on you as a vendor to figure out who are you going to serve, how are you going to differentiate, and how are you going to have a more feature-rich offering for the segment of the market that you want to go chase um, that may be different than what Amazon's chasing. That's all in product strategy. That's all in how you want to you know, build a roadmap that targets a segment of the market that makes both technical and business sense. Let's continue focusing on Redis for a second. If you think about Redis, I mean, is this a way to build a durable company? Like, will this encourage uh, the durability of Redis Labs' business model by adding the commons clause to this open source project? Again, I think licensing is a tactic. What will be the success or failure of Redis Labs is what technology, you know, like, what's their broader perspective on what they are building as a company above and beyond sort of the, the Redis core, right? That's highly used by and loved by a lot of developers in a lot of use cases, right? So as a business, where are they going to add value around that, right? You know, are they just going to be a support company? Are they building commercial extensions to that? And then sort of tactically, if it's commercial extensions and or, you know, managed service or cloud service type uh, solutions, then, you know, how do you license it? How do you package it up? You know, how do people pay for it, et cetera, comes after that. But it's really gets rooted in, you know, what are you <laughs> uh, focused on as a business? Yep. Redis is sort of a core technology they're going to build a business around, but that isn't the only thing, right? I think the rest of this stuff comes, you know, as far as choice of licensing and that kind of stuff um, comes after, after the fact. Um, And that's why I use sort of Elastic as an example is Elastic search, you know, Apache license, very similar, widely used, very similar to Redis. And, you know, they've chosen a very specific uh, Elastic uh, commercial license to apply to some of their value add that, but that license also enables them to make the code open. Um, so it's not, the code isn't, op- isn't open source in the true sense, but people can look at a GitHub and see the code behind the commercial software. And to them, it was important to have the transparency in the source code itself, even if the source code was commercially licensed and wasn't using an open source approved license. That is a sort of an even, you know, a more of an even trade-off. If you look at their business, they they make money from you know cloud service type contracts. Even though Amazon has an Elastic you know service out there, Elastic is uh, doing similar. But they also, if you download and install it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they have a multi sort of revenue streams out of that off of a common base with sort of a clean license model for sort of the extensions that they deem commercial and they want to protect a little bit more. So I said, you know, that one feels right to me if I were sort of advising folks to go, yep, that's a pretty good model. Right. Maybe one way, one angle of looking at this is it's an unbundling to, since we're in an industry jargon kind of conversation, to, to use some industry jargon, it's an unbundling of what you get with open source it, conventionally conventionally with open source we think of extreme examples like the linux kernel but that's you know you could have other gradations you can have like this code base is mostly open but maybe you know certain components of it are non-monetizable and the only reason that 
that seems allergic to us is or to some people is because of what they're they're normalized to now maybe we could contrast this with some other open source sectors that that are are trying to find their their legs right now so a couple examples come to mind in the kubernetes space so you've got a, a variety of kubernetes as a service products that are not tied to major cloud providers and they're kind of trying to build a in some cases open source platform or system that's connected to kubernetes they're trying to make that work there are also companies like service mesh providers and it's an open question as to like how do you build a good service mesh business can you build a good service mesh business when a cloud provider like google cloud is just going to probably give it to you for free as a feature you know can you i guess in in your perspective on the world do you have a vision do you have a differentiated vision on what a service mesh should be or what the features around a service mesh should be or what the delivery mechanism of a service mesh should be and can you profit off of that vision despite the fact that your code is open source so what's your perspective on the kubernetes space and monetizing open source in the world of kubernetes yeah so it's funny i mean that the kubernetes space has been playing on me also had you know apache mesos and you know a variety of other sort of platforms um and when i was at hortonworks we were watching the sort of the rise of container-based uh, deployment and yeah, you know, I would joke there for a while. I'd look at the magic eight ball to figure out who's going to win. I'd go Outlook Hazy ask again later, and then it became really clear, <laughs> like about a year and a half ago, that Kubernetes is going to win sort of the you know the lightweight rail, if you will, for the new workloads, right? And so, and you've seen sort of the industry sort of place their bets around it, whether it's Amazon, Google, Azure container services or whether it's you know pivotal or red hat openshift or what have you right uh, just been a phenomenal sort of you know coalescing around sort of the kubernetes uh, dial tone <laughs> right with that you have other things like service meshes and others right so you know buoyant is one of the companies and you know talk with william there you bring up you know service mesh and there's a couple ways you can look at service mesh as an example if you're trying to figure out how do you want to differentiate? One is you can view it from, you know, it's a feature of the platform, right? And platform owners who buy the platform are going to want a certain set of features around, you know, traffic routing, quality of service, um, security, things like that. Or you can flip it and basically go, well, what if, what if sort of the service mesh features enabled an experience for the service owner? Right. The people who are deploying the services have the beepers and when things go wrong, they want to be able to see the performance. They want to be able to interact with the health and vibrancy of the service. And it's less of a platform owner thing and really more of a service owner thing and enabling collaboration, of the service owner and the team uh, who you know developed the service to be able to find and triage performance issues whether it's services they consume upstream or whether it's services they're influencing downstream, where does the problem uh, lie? And so you, one could argue you could build a whole set of capabilities that appeal to a service owner that could be very differentiated than a set of capabilities that appeal to more of a platform owner who's trying to get consistency across every service. And so for a service owner, 
You know, Linkerd 2.0 uh, recently came out, and I've seen some of the demos there. And it's easy just to mix in to your service and be up and running very quickly without a mother may I of what's the standard sort of quote service mesh um, for the uh, platform as a whole. The service owner is actually able to get a lot of uh, value um, through dashboards and reporting and charts and things like that from their service perspective in a way that makes sense for them. So, you know, the point there is, you know, it really depends on who you're appealing to. Another example sort of outside the service mesh space to make it more concrete is, you know, application performance management uh, tooling has been around forever, but New Relic built a very strong and publicly strong, right, via an IPO business off of enabling developers who are creating apps to get introspection into how the app is performing. And, and oh, by the way, a lot of those details were available on a software as a service platform where you can go view the performance, et cetera, et cetera. And they've built a very scalable SaaS-based model off of that. So, you know, I can envision service, you know, sort of sidecar and service mesh type capabilities being delivered through a SaaS model that sort of inject in in a more service owner uh, focused so I, you know, it really depends on which way you scratch the itch and for whom you scratch it for. <laughs> I'll sort of close out on, on it is one of my phrasings is who are these people, right? Who are you building for? It's sort of a, you know, a Seinfeld thing. Who are these people, right? Who are these people, <laughs> right? And it's important to know who you're building the tech for, right? So because um, service mesh is a general term, and in many cases, most folks view it from the platform up, not necessarily from the service owner down, right? And you could very much have two different solutions that have similar sets of capabilities, but for um, different purposes. Very true. And you know, for some of these vendors that are not major cloud providers, there might be some advantage to the fact that you are not a giant cloud provider because there is a degree of of distrust, the same thing that drives this multi-cloud concern. If you're, I guess if you're a, a non-cloud provider, people will trust you more to be able to deliver multi-cloud solutions. So that that does seem like a burgeoning advantage for some of these independent non-cloud provider companies like service mesh providers or you know a mesosphere or a red hat those are sponsors of the show i guess i should mention but um, i think that point stands other opportunities in i'm seeing this really big shift from so there's the sh- obviously the shift to the cloud but there's also the shift towards kubernetes and these things are going hand in hand and if you're a giant enterprise like an insurance company or a bank, you are in the midst of adopting these technologies. You're in the midst of figuring out how to use the cloud. We're past the world in which the cloud is a, is a controversial move to make because you want to use software tools that are only in the cloud. What are the other opportunities for new software companies to come up and how should they position themselves as we are in this moment of software architecture within large enterprises and the and the software buying patterns changing yeah so you know i i think i always like disruptive and or sort of looking at things from the opposite side of things right so 
And before Hortmarks, I was at Springsource and VMware. Before that, I was at JBoss uh, and Red Hat. And the interesting thing on the JBoss to Springsource realm was JBoss's focus, particularly back in those days, was on a J2EE application server platform. So very platform-centric approach. Whereas Spring and Rod Johnson, they were focused on how do you have an inversion of control? How do you invert how you think about the platform where I as a developer can have control and I can just sort of inject things in from the side, right? And be able to move much more quickly and consume just the things out of the platform that I want to consume. And two sort of very different sort of approaches to, you know, sort of that that technology. If we look at the cloud and that kind of stuff, you know, whenever I look at a particular sector, you know, if you're in a in a new space that the cloud vendors haven't gotten to, maybe that opens an opportunity to maybe partner with them and or come out with, you know, a cloud service yourself around, you know, your time series database or what have you, right? In the other realm is if it's just going to be stuff that's baked into the core, then you really have to ask yourself, how can you be the best at something that either adds value on top of that uh, versus basically trying to convince people that your thing, which is very, very similar to the other cloud thing, is going to be good enough. I do think there is value in uh, multi-cloud notions. Like Hortmarks has a, a data plane service, which is all about sort of hybrid data management Cross on-prem and, and multi-cloud, and it's built. You know, they're building specific features and capabilities that address that need. But in the case of data, data is everywhere, and it's inherently a data is everywhere problem, right? That needs to be solved. It isn't just on Amazon or Azure or Google or on-prem or what have you. So it just isn't. You can't just say, "Well, I'm going to create something that runs in all three. There has to be true sort of value above and beyond that. That's why I use sort of the new relic, you know, thing as an example is they started off with sort of monitoring and that kind of stuff, which for the most part has been commoditized. But, you know, in their service, you're able to bring a bunch of other data in there that gives you richer insights, you know, above and beyond sort of the application layer. But they started sort of in a particular area. So you have to have a vision for, you know, as a software company, what do you have today? How are you building it out? What's the form factors, cloud, uh, downloadable, or what have you? Um, and then how do you envision what are a couple of different ways that the technology might expand or grow into a sort of adjacent opportunities? Because the competitors, whether it's the cloud players or others, are always going to be looking to eat the lunch, right? And you need to keep you know, you need to be like a shark. You need to be continually moving, right? And, you know, swimming and making sure that you're picking sort of the right choice for um, sort of adjacent opportunities and higher value add. I should talk some about your history. So as you've alluded to, you've worked at JBoss, at SpringSource before it was acquired by VMware, and then you were at Hortonworks for, I guess, six more than six years which is where you worked closely with Mitch, Mitch Ferguson, who was on to talk about go-to-market strategy a couple weeks ago. And I, I guess I want to talk through some of that. Oh, you were with him at SpringSource as well, I guess. So you were, v, you were VP of product management at SpringSource, and it got acquired by VMware. And this was in 2008 in the aftermath of the financial crisis. 
How did the, I mean, I can imagine that would affect any business to some degree. How did the crisis, the financial crisis, affect the product strategy and, and the acquisition environment for SpringSource? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. My experience at SpringSource ultimately led me to uh, <laughs> to Hortworks, and I'll sort of tell you the backdrop story to that. But it was basically I joined SpringSource in 2008. September of 2009, VMware acquired us. Frankly, SpringSource, you know, had, you know, served, ah. you know, a million Java developers, right? So we, we, we had a very large, vibrant, happy community. So in large part, you know, stuff that we added around it, I don't think we were really impacted much from sort of the financial crisis. I think the marriage with VMware made a lot of sense um, because Paul Moritz was um, CEO at the time, and he's a he's a very developer savvy, strategy minded CEO, extremely impressive individual, <laughs> and he saw this um, movement to cloud and really felt it was important to bring a large community of developers um, and align them ultimately with VMware's cloud vision, which spun out to be pivotal, right? and Cloud Foundry and Cloud Native Development and everything good that you see with Pivotal these days, right? So, you know, that was a long game that Paul Moritz was playing at, at VMware. I recall a meeting that we had um, with Fidelity. It was one of sort of our joint customers at the time before VMware acquired SpringSource, where we were talking about this vision of platform as a service and sort of cloud uh, development models. And one of the things that came up in the meeting was, that's great, higher productivity, faster deployment, right? All the stuff that we know and love as part of DevOps and cloud native development today, you know, was we were sort of painting this vision back then. But they also said, you know, come back when you've also solved the data problem um, because you have latencies of getting data to the applications themselves. Sort of fast forward to 2011, when I left VMware and I joined Hortmarks specifically to solve the data problem. <laughs> so there were two halves, application, developer productivity, right? Fast turnaround, continuous deployment type development models. And then also uh, ubiquitous access to data and the ability to get data no matter where it is in a form factor that uh, developers and you know analysts can get easy access to it. Um, that was sort of the, the Wortmark's uh, vision. And they were semi-related was now let's remove the obstacle of the data. And that's, that's where I spent the last six and a half years at Hortmark's really trying to democratize data <laughs> in many respects using an open source model. Now, at Hortonworks, the Hadoop provider market in 2011, when I think back to that time, it seems like that was a, a fairly zero-sum market. So you have all these enterprises that are choosing between Hortonworks, Cloudera, or MapR. What lessons did you learn about strategy in a super competitive market like that? Yep. So I tend to be a pretty simple guy when I'm looking at what I'm trying to build, how I go about it, and who am I competing with, right? And so, for instance, when I was at JBoss, you know, it's an application server, WebLogic had a highly rated one with uh, technologists, developers, and IBM had it with uh, WebSphere. I basically said, 
let's focus on kicking WebLogic's butt, <laughs> right? And we'll win our fair share of the market. Don't try and compete with IBM because they'll do a top-down sale and our sales guys, you know, we're not selling software. We're really trying to get it ubiquitous and we need to win the hearts and minds of the developers and the technologists. And I think, you know, that sort of sort of won out. In the case of Hortonworks, um, Hortonworks basically came into the market about three years after CloudEra. So they had been in the market for a while. MapR was also in the market uh, ahead of Hortonworks. And so that influenced sort of the model that we chose. CloudEra chose a open core model where CDH is uh, open source, the Apache technology, and then security management, governance, and all that stuff were commercially licensed sort of add-ons around it. When I joined, I started advising Hortonworks. I basically said, you're not going to catch up. You'll never break down the three-year head start. You basically have to make security management, governance, and all that stuff open source and let the model kick in, you know, to the point where arguably Hortonworks is probably a little less than a year behind CloudEra in, from a revenue perspective now, right? So a few years were chopped off of that lead. Both companies are successful public companies. You know, I think, you know, Hortonworks will do over 350 million this year. So that's a lot in revenue and, and uh, CloudEra is a little bit above that. So it was just a choice. And, but at that time, when I was talking with Rob Beard and the CEO, I was like, listen, we're making a long, <laughs> like when we look ourselves in the mirror five, six years from now, we don't want to, you know, this isn't something you change, right? We're choosing the open model um, for good or, you know, whatever it's going to, you know, <laughs> you can't waffle, right? You, you got to be true to who you are. Um, that's what the brand is going to stand for. And I think for the most part, Hortonworks has done a good job of sort of standing behind that brand, being the open player, enabling partners like Microsoft and others to sort of get the value out of the platform and, and be, being a collaborative player there. But that set the tone of, you know, the personality and culture of the company, um, the roadmap of the product, uh, the licensing strategy was kind of all related to that, if you will, right? And I think, as you pointed out, I was able to work with folks like uh, Mitch Ferguson, you know, on establishing, I think, two things were important at the founding of Hortonworks. One was who were going to be our sort of cornerstone partners. And the two out of the gate that we chose were Teradata, uh, because they were sort of the top of the pyramid, quote, big data Right, there was just a lot of very, very large enterprise IT shops that had Teradata, and they would want sort of a Hadoop data platform um, integrated with that. And then Microsoft, particularly around Azure, HD Insight, and the Hadoop as a Service stuff that uh, we did with them, make it ubiquitous, make it easy to use. Right, so two different choices on those. Both of those threw off pretty uh, decent and continue to throw off pretty decent amounts of revenue for the companies. And they were commitments that were made pretty early on and took a while to build out. So, you know, the point there is my advice to anybody is if you don't quite know what things are, make sure you think through and do your due diligence. Once you take an approach, <laughs> be true to yourself, be true to your customers, particularly be true to the community. Because if you're just doing it for monetization purposes and, you know, only and not from an open source true open source model perspective, you'll be called out on it very directly uh, down the line. 
And so, you know, I think we did pretty good jobs at that at JBoss and Spring and, and Hortonworks. Well, as we draw to a close here, I just want to give people some closing wisdom. You've been in product strategy for a pretty long time. Now you're advising different companies. What are the new kinds of problems that you are seeing in the companies that you're advising? Again, I'm engaged. My focus, really the sweet spot, is young technology companies that either have had seed funding, either self-funded seed funding or like Series A. So they're earlier in their journey, if you will. And I think, you know, some of the things that everybody wants to sort of pre-think it out and, and basically go, you know, I need to commit to a specific set of use cases and that kind of stuff and or accelerate you know, the product market fit, if you will, right? And I, I think there's waves of establishing a company. Number one is make sure you get a solid team and nucleus, right, that you could build off of where you're passionate about a particular area. You know, the next is how do you find sort of that product market fit, right? And that may take a while. And, you know, it could be vertically oriented, horizontal, or what have you, right? It really depends on what you're building and how you're bringing it to market. Um, if you're building bringing a cloud solution to market, you might aim that at small to mid-sized businesses um, and at more of an enterprise downloadable thing might be aimed at different folks, right? Really depends on um, sort of what you're trying to accomplish there. And then once you have a repeat, once you have product market fit and a repeatable sales process, then how do you scale a business and then really scale the revenue both with partners as well as directly? I think it oftentimes people try and short circuit <laughs> through that. And with Cloud and SaaS, yep, it's you can potentially get faster to market, particularly you know with a hosted solution. But that has its own set of complexities, right? Where you know you're signing up for twenty four by seven operational. So if you're down, your customer's down, right? And as a service owner, you might want to have <laughs> Linker D two O and its sort of service sidecar stuff helping you to introspect and find your problems, for instance, right? But uh, you know, I think. That's some of the things that I think are challenging. There isn't open source is just a sort of a distribution model. And so I think that knocks down certain barriers to the technology being adopted quickly. I still think what it means to build sort of a scalable business, finding the right team, really finding the right product market fit. How do you package it for that product market fit? That blocking and tackling is pretty consistent in my mind. Right. And so, you know, I think building out the team, uh, having engineer mentality that sort of embraces the business side, uh, particularly when it's time to scale. I think these are challenges that a lot of uh, these young tech companies need help with uh, navigating the waters. And that's what, you know, keeps me out. Of, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I, so, I sort of close with, you know, I think it's working hard having fun while you work hard, right? Constantly learning and making sure you're sort of true to yourself in the process, you know, I think are sort of key sort of defining things on how I approach matters. Uh, you know, do things in a very team oriented way. And so when I engage folks in that, that's some of the sort of the, the more subjective advice that I try and build out, particularly as I'm engaging some of these, you know, young tech companies is, they need to act, you know, they need to work and act as a team. It's going to be hard work, but they need to have fun along the way, right? <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, 
you can really go sideways um, if you're just get overly focused on one thing, you know, one way or the other, you know, work, work, work without really uh, keeping an eye on the uh, sort of ultimate prize. So there's a balance there. And that's what I also try and advise folks uh, to try and strike that balance. Okay, Sean. Well, it's been really great talking to you. We covered a lot of ground and thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. All right. I appreciate it, Jeff. And thanks for having me. Wow.